The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. We explain how Driver in the Loop simulators became key to F1 success, delve into Aston Martin's recent slump, and tackle your questions on car development and pneumatic valves. Welcome to another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. We're in the midst of the August break right now, but there's plenty of tech chat to bring, even when F1 is on hiatus. I'm Ed Straw, and I'm joined by the star of the show, Gary Anderson, who has amassed vast experience in more than half a century of motorsport, not just in F1, but in myriad other categories. Where do you stand on all this F1 shutdown business, Gary? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's necessary if the teams can't control themselves. Uh, and allow people to have a bit of a summer break because all the kids off on holiday and one thing and another, then you know something has to be done about it. I think it's reasonably good. It's it's obviously very very difficult to police as to how you shut down somebody's mind that might think about stuff during that summer break. Um, I always found that you know whenever I was involved, your mind uh, your mind never cleared. It was seven days a week, twenty four hours a day, to be honest. Um, you're always thinking about the next step. So that's the thing that, you know, you've got to discipline yourself and each each team has got to discipline themselves to say, look, we are shutting down or we are having a break. Otherwise, it's a bit of a, a false dawn. Um, and I think the teams do now respect it reasonably well. You know, they've grown big enough to actually sort of encompass it a bit and uh, allow allow certain members of the staff to have proper holidays. Um, so, yeah, it's it's the right thing. Something had to be done because it was just more races, more and more, more and more time away, all that sort of stuff. So this at least gives that break where everybody can have a bit of a breather. Yeah, it's two weeks they have to shut down for. And there is a short shutdown in December as well, which proved a little bit controversial because you've got to be careful of how much of people's holiday time you do uh, you do limit, particularly for people with families. And obviously, most of the F1 team don't actually go to the races. They're, uh, they're based at the factory. But anyway, I think, yeah, the shutdown in general is a, a good thing. And as always, Gary, we'll start off with a free choice of topic for you. So what's on your mind from the world of F1 tech? Well, as, you know, the change... Um Aston Martin's performance, I suppose you might call it, leading up to the to the summer break, relative to McLaren's performance leading up to the summer break, and uh, you know we do hear from Aston Martin that um, they're not. I think they say they're not quite sure why they're they're not as performant as they were. Now it's all it is all relative. Um, you know you're only you're only as competitive as the guy at the front, and you're only your your offset should always be taken to whoever's fastest. Um, because that's that's really and truthfully, you know, your measure. That's that's your yardstick. So yes, I do agree with Aston. They haven't lost as much as it looks like, uh, as far as actual out and out performance is concerned. But they they have lost, whereas McLaren have gained uh, as to the relative to the guy that's fastest at each weekend. So they have improved themselves, and that's what they should look at. Not not necessarily uh, your grid position, because that can go up and down at like a yo-yo, depending upon what. Um, you know the circuit, all sorts of stuff. But it's your your percentage loss that really and truthfully you need to look at carefully. And if that's getting bigger, you're going backwards. Somebody else is out out developing you. Um, in this case, obviously the season's been dominated by Red Bull, so that's your that's your measure. Check yourself against them. They have brought developments to the to the track. Uh, if you're not keeping up with that, that's that's not that's not their fault. It's your fault. And uh, as I say, McLaren have shut that down a bit, so they've they've definitely got better, and and Aston Martin have have, have opened up a bit. Um, so you need to make sure that you're realistic 
and honest with yourself about these developments because it's so easy to put something on the car that changes the characteristics of the car and you sort of lose the balance, you lose the good part. Um, you might gain more downforce, you might gain all sorts of stuff, but there's always a loss in there. And if you're, it doesn't matter whether you gained more, if the, if the stopwatch doesn't say that, then you've got to you know scratch your head and think again. Because that's one of the things I always say, it's the um, it's a sort of philosophy of the aerodynamic package that gives you the performance. And if you've sort of got a good philosophy, but you you, you go the wrong direction with it, then you, you bring in some bad characteristics. Um, and so I'd say Aston Martin need to look deeply at that to, to make sure they haven't done that. Um, and again, on McLaren's side, they need, they need to look deeply at what they've done because then they can... Um, keep on moving forward with it that's that's the important thing learn by your by what you've done to go to go worse but also learn by what you've done to go better yeah i think it's an interesting case study the the aston martin situation i spoke to mike crack after the hungarian grand prix where they struggled they were ninth and tenth and he said that that race was a bit of a reality check because even after qualifying they were quite optimistic but i think they thought their race pace would be much much better so i think they have been slightly surprised by how they've fallen back relatively obviously fernando alonso's pointed to the tire change but nobody else in the team seems to be going with the the tires as the cause of that the change is too small and indeed up and down the paddock teams are fairly happy that the change was negligible in terms of its impact so I think it's just a a simple question of just putting performance onto the car isn't it and obviously that they they had quite an a well-conceived fairly even car obviously stronger in the slower and medium speed corners it was a little bit draggy they've chipped away a little bit at that as well but I think it's also that other teams maybe had a bit more room for improvement as well with some bigger problems. So that also plays a part in it, doesn't it? And it could be that they'll bring some more upgrades because they say they've got lots more still to come and they take a bigger step forward. Because the last really major upgrade for them was Canada because even the floor upgrade in uh, before the break was sort of tidying up that uh, Canada floor change. Yeah, I mean, if, if we do look, um, you just did mention there about finishing 8th and 9th or whatever it was in, in Hungary. I mean that's position. So again, I'm, I'm I push pretty hard for percentage because you know taking the tires as an example. If if Pirelli were to bring a completely rev- different tire, it's still only relative to the to the guy at the front. You know if if uh, if Red Bull lost, you know went down the mid to the midfield with it, then you'd say Red Bull have got a problem with that new tire. And if if suddenly um, you know I don't know Haas were the top with the with the hot shoe then you suddenly say, well, they got an advantage from that tyre. But as I say, it's all relative. So as long as you've got continuity and all the teams are getting the same change in the tyre, then you've got, to, you've got to just respect it. You've got to sort your setup around that, that given tyre and you're still competitive against the guy at the front, which again, as I say, is Red Bull. Now, if we take those last circuits, you know, Montreal, um, Silverstone, Hungary, Spa, they're all very, very different circuits. They all require a very different car, to be honest. Um, you know, uh, you you need different characteristics from each of the cars to go better at each circuit. Hungry with its long corners, you need you know good balance mid corner. Um, it's it's you know the fast sweeping stuff of Spa and Silverstone, uh, Montreal straight line speed. So there's different things that make up the jigsaw at those circuits. But that's the team's job to get the car optimized for those different tracks. And that's like McLaren didn't at Spa. They had a good car when it was wet and they needed the downforce, but they didn't have a good car whenever it was dry and they didn't need the downforce. So the team's job is to optimise each car for each track and get the best out of it. So I think we'll have to wait and see if they, if they do come up with some mods, but I do think they've lost some of, the, some of the good 
from the Aston Martin at the moment. Yeah, I think that's the challenge with these regs, isn't it? With the the ground effect floors and the ride height sensitivity and all those things, it's very, very easy with these to seek gains and the trade-off isn't quite right. And it doesn't seem like the characteristics of the car has surprised them, but I think they expected a better net performance out of the characteristics they've gone after, if you, if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, I mean, uh, anything that, that's using the ground um, as its sort of second surface, I suppose you might call it, uh, it will have massive characteristics changes depending upon how you uh, influence the flow and the underflow and the front wing. Um, so you got to you got to be very careful with that because no matter what wind tunnel you got or what cars out there, there still has to be a little bit of um, gut feel with a lot of stuff on the underflow of the car. And I think that's where Red Bull gain a little bit. They've got a slightly better gut feel as to how to uh, optimize that working in that environment. Um, so it's, as I say, it's very easy to to make mistakes in your development direction, and the wind tunnel or even CFD relative to the ground not predict it because it becomes a very very complicated scenario. If you get a characteristic change, let's say in the wind tunnel coming from the underfloor, um, again on the track with the car moving transient movement, um, you can multiply those characteristic changes by ten, and uh, you know. As you see them in the wind tunnel, you might say, oh, that's okay, it's not too much. But they will be greater when it comes to the, the, the track, for sure. So you've got to be a little bit careful that you're, you're not developing yourself down this blind alley that you can't actually predict. And we've seen teams doing that quite a lot. So it's about discipline and not just chasing that one thing. More downforce, please, thank you. And we'll go faster. It doesn't work like that whenever you've got a ground effect car. One other thing I wanted to ask you about before we move on to the rest of our podcast is you did do something a little bit different uh, this weekend, just gone, that's well worth asking about. You paid a visit to Silverstone for MotoGP. Yeah, I did. Um, it was interesting. My nephew and his son is very, very interested in um, in, in motorbikes. Uh, well, all my Irish family is all very interested in motorbikes. Um, so we, we always try and take a trip up to, the BR, up to the BRDC. Luckily enough, I'm a member of the BRDC, which have a, a great facility there, um, and watch the, uh, the, the, the MotoGP races. Uh, MotoGP, Moto3, Moto2, uh, fantastic, all very good. Um, also, looking closely at the bikes, I went down the pit lane and had a good look around the Aprilia, which was very good because uh, the guy running the team there, Massimo, he was ex-Ferrari. So uh, I get to know him quite well. So have a, an Aprilia coffee and I look around the bikes and aerodynamically they're just, they're into a, a new dimension. Um, because, you know, we think about motor racing and, you know, all the aerodynamic forces, the ground effect, it's all two-dimensional. It gives you downforce or it gives you drag. Um, whereas on the, mo- on, the, on the motorbikes, the MotoGP especially, you know, it's three-dimensional. The bike's... You know, crank over at 40 degrees from the ground whenever you really need confidence in the bike and then it's upright and you're putting maximum power on it so you need to keep the front down and whenever you're braking you need to keep the back stable so it's just such a three-dimensional aerodynamic package and it's interesting to see the, the, the different directions people are taking on it and uh, you need to look at it long and hard before you get a, a gut feel as to what's going on but it's uh, it's a whole different kettle of fish to uh, to what aerodynamics are sort of on a, on a Formula 1 car. So um, interesting to see that and interesting to see the fact that they have gone to so much small detail on their dynamics to just improve just that little bit. It's, uh, yeah, very good weekend. Really enjoyed it. Great racing and uh, we'll be back again next year. 
Yeah, it's always a great event, uh, Silverstone MotoGP. I went there, if, well, I say a few years ago, that's probably 2016, 2017 now, some, some time ago. But yeah, really, uh, really enjoyable. And although I'm not somebody who's sort of a fan of bikes in the same way, I appreciate bike racing, but it's not quite in the blood in the, in the same way. But it's, I think anybody can, uh, could enjoy a bit of MotoGP. So well worth going along there. Well, our main topic in this episode is driver-in-the-loop simulators. DIL technology has become increasingly important in F1, and as we'll hear in our interview, it's not just about having the driver in the loop, but also software and hardware increasingly. What do you make of the rise of uh, driver simulators, Gary? I imagine when it was being pioneered in F1 by the likes of McLaren in the 90s, there was some scepticism. Yeah, there was really. I suppose it was you know, it was seen then as the, you know, the big boys found a way to spend their budget, um, which probably was quite true um you know obviously airplanes for example have had simulation for uh, a long long time and uh, it's been one of those sort of situations where that that was then sort of woke up formula one woke up to it and sort of thought well we can adapt this and you know simulation in an aircraft again started very fairly primitive i suppose it was all about um getting pilots to to practice landings um take off and landing was the main thing i suppose and then it sort of developed a little bit where the um, aeroplane companies could start to change the characteristics of the plane for all of that. Um, and, and Formula One's the same. It started off as a, as a fairly basic tool um, that you could actually sort of learn the tracks. The tracks. Some of the tracks were, you know, GPS surveyed or, or normal surveyed even. Uh, so they weren't that representative, but they told you whether they went left or right. Uh, they told you where the big, you know, the big curbs were. So it started like that, and then the teams found out they could actually try the different characteristics of the car and see if it went faster or slower. But with any of these things, it, it's it's only as good as the data you feed into it and how that data is interpreted. interpreted. It's um, very difficult to just really, really have 100% confidence in it. And again, it's not always the your wrist drivers that actually are good at driving the uh, driver in the loop simulators, you know, sometimes they they don't get excited about it too much. Uh, wrongly so, but it's, you know, it is a discipline it's in its own right. So most of the teams do have somebody as a resident driver in the loop simulator driver that they can, they know his characteristics, the way he drives the car. Um, so you got to be very careful that you don't end up going down a different alley from what your race drivers really want. You're your drivers have got to be able to communicate about the characteristics of the car and try to uh, to make it sort of acceptable for all. But um, the big problem for me with them, and still is with them, that it's only as good as the data you feed in. So the, you, the data all starts somewhere. It starts with the, you know, the, the Pajeka files for the tires. Um, it ends up with all the aerodynamic profiles for all the different ride heights all the characteristics of the car in a transient condition when you're applying the steering, the yaw, the roll rate, all of that has to be fed into there correctly. And if it isn't fed into there correctly, the end result is wrong. So you need, you know, at the start, you need all the the good facts. And then at the end, you you might get something out of it. But I wouldn't, you know, 100% rely on it taking you to a racetrack um, and and uh, putting you in pole position. We see a lot of reaction, especially Mercedes this year, where they think that they gain a lot from getting the data on a Friday. And uh, Mick Schumacher does a lot of their simulation driving uh, overnight type thing before the Saturday event. And uh, 
they improve themselves for the Saturday. So, you know, you're taking real data at that point in time on the track, and then you're trying to improve that real data, which is a different way of doing it from taking uh, development direction from a wind tunnel. Um, so I suppose as, a, as an extra practice session on a Friday night for a Saturday or a Saturday, well, Saturday, Sunday, you can't do it anymore because you can't change the setup of the car. Um, but from Friday night to Saturday, um, it's a good tool then to give you some extra practice time and try some different setups. That's when you should try your way out wacky setups, I suppose you might call it, as opposed to your dot the I's and cross the T's, which is what you tend to do once you're at the racetrack. And it is uh, obviously part of a, a suite of all the simulation tools they've got. You have the driver and loop simulator, and there's a multitude of other things. Ultimately, no simulation is precise. They're all models, aren't they? Approximations, but collectively you want them to work because cars, even before they run, not only uh, before they run in pre-season testing, I mean, not only do they do a lot of miles in the DIL simulator, but also they'll have run on dynamic rigs, which will absolutely work the cars like they're on the track. And these will often have, uh, for the top teams, engines integrated and all sorts. So it's, it's astonishing that you can effectively run your car a huge amount using the the sum of all of these simulation tools. Yeah, it is. I mean, the the the, the suite of simulation tools that a, a top team would have now is horrendous, and that was you know it was like um, banning testing during the season was all done to save money. I'm not really sure at the end of the day that it has saved money. Um, it could have been you know, testing at the track could have been organised in such a way that it was scheduled for you know a couple of days after each event as they do now with the Pirelli tests three or four different races that could have been organised so the team that's there could could do some testing um, track testing which would have again would have been good for the public and you know the spectators and the, the viewers and all sorts of stuff but at the minute it's all done in a darkened room as such. Um, is that good? I'm not sure. I would I would have gone the other route and tried to have made it all happen on the track. And I think it would have meant, if it did all happen on the track, the teams that, that struggle with actually accurate simulation um, would have done better because the, real, the track doesn't tell lies. You know, the stopwatch doesn't tell lies. If you're at the track and you're trying stuff and it goes faster, it goes slower. There's, there's, no, there's no rail in between. Um, whereas in a, in a simulation rig, um, it can lead you up the garden path very, very quickly. Not because it's wrong, it's just because your data isn't, isn't as good as it needs to be for that simulation rig to, to give you the best results. Well, it is a, a fascinating area coming back to the, the, the driver in the loop simulators because they are now such integral parts of teams and it's great in our interview shortly we'll hear all the ways that it's being used and yeah integrating your software and hardware and that kind of thing and becoming increasingly essential and teams have been investing heavily in simulators ferrari recently had a a brand new one mclaren's got one uh coming these are the, basically the next generation simulators so it's a it's a huge thing how about the effect on drivers themselves from these simulators as you said this was almost the original mission statement of these before it, it became much more broad yeah, I don't think all the drivers really um, buy into the fact that they need to spend a lot of time on the simulator. Um, even you know, some some people even drive it and it makes them sick. The, the driver in the loop simulator is a very different beast from what we call sort of the home sim. Um, and I would look, I'd look at the home sim as being a very useful tool. Um, I was very skeptical about it a long time ago because I thought, well. You know, driving a racing car, it's all about getting the feel. It's all about getting the feel from the car, you know, the acceleration, the cornering forces, all that stuff, the, the steering load. 
some of that now on the even in the home sims is is there steering load for example is is easy, easy enough to simulate so i look at that and i think how how come max verstappen spends so much time actually you know racing on his home sim not not playing on his home sim but racing on his home sim competitively and i just wonder if that actually you know helps him to to be able to drive a car with less feeling than you get from a real racing car. Um, you know, well, the one characteristic of the of the Red Bull that we know is it has this huge amount of anti-dive and anti-lift rear suspension. And all of that ends up taking away from the driver's driver inputs, I suppose, that the, the car should give him. But, you know, we always know that Max, from lap one of, of Friday practice, is out there and he's... he's Quick from from the step from the get go, and a lot of other drivers struggle with that. And you can only relate Max to, to to Sergio Perez. You know, Sergio on his day is is up there with anybody, um, but Max is just that step ahead, to be honest. And I wonder just if if doing all his at home simulation racing, which is competitive, because you know when you're racing, it's different from just going out for a practice session and just having a bit of fun. When you're racing, you're racing other people, so you have a competition there. And if you can drive the car without feeling, with, with, with the limited feeling, sorry, that a, a home simulator would give you, then you can drive a car that's got a limited feedback. And I'm sure with all that suspension characteristic that Red Bull have to control their aerodynamic platform, the car doesn't have the ultimate feedback that a racing driver would really like. So uh, I just got a feeling, gut feeling that Max has just got something that's, you know, a step a step more of an input into his driving skills than, than others. And, and it's because he likes it. You know, he does it because he's fun doing it. Uh, he, he does it because he is competitive. We've seen whenever something's gone wrong or he's lost it, how he, how he does, does lose it, basically, whenever it doesn't happen for him correctly. Um, so I think the, the time and effort he puts in at home is, is pretty impressive. And I think that really does help him when it comes to a race weekend. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Obviously, a very different type of simulator to the ones we're talking about. But yeah, I think you could be onto something there. Certainly, at the very least, it reflects his enthusiasm for competition and and racing. And he operates at a high level in in sim racing. He's uh, I don't think he's absolutely kind of a a superstar of sim racing, but he's uh, he's very very good. He's sort of right. He's up there without being the absolute star i mean i have to be a little bit careful as the sim racing world i'm interested in it i'm not uh, an expert in it and i should also say i've been terrible whenever i've uh, dabbled in sim racing truly truly terrible far worse than i was in a, in a real racing car I found it much much more difficult so yeah your point is interesting you're listening to the race f1 tech show brought to you by aramco aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence as the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Our guest today is Keir Kamartz, co-founder and technical director of Ansible Motion. His career in motorsport stretches back to his early days with Rolton March in the late 1980s. He then worked as an aerodynamicist for Team Lotus before working as a freelance designer on myriad projects, including for the 1993 LaRousse F1 gearbox. He was also involved in the Ikazawa F1 project that did significant design work but ran out of cash before it could race. But it's in simulation technology, particularly driver-in-the-loop simulators, that he spent much of his career since Ansible Motion was created in 1999. 
1999. I had the pleasure of paying a visit to Ansible Motion, based in the splendid Hethel Technology Centre, just next door to Lotus Cars. It was fascinating to take a look around and to interview Kia, whose enthusiasm and knowledge about this technology was infectious. I learned a huge amount, and I'm sure you will too, from listening to what he had to say. Well, I'm delighted to be joined by Kia Kamatz of Ansible Motion. Uh, perhaps, Kia, you can tell us a little bit about who you are and your background, and then a little bit about your company. Sure. Um, I'm technical director of Ansible Motion, and I was the uh, founder of it uh, back in 2009. Um, recently, it's been acquired by AB Dynamics PLC and is part of a much larger engineering group. But uh, at the onset, uh, there were two of us and a dog. So um, we have grown perhaps to around a headcount uh, of about 50 people now over the 14 years that we've been uh, running. And we've gone from an idea of uh, what could be done to actually being at the forefront of what is being done. Um, since our first machine, um, there's, there's, there's been steady development on every front on our driving simulation technology and our ability to simulate vehicles and in the number of people that are using this and in the type of people that are using it. And in the early days, we had very brave early adopters who were um, highly um, risk tolerant and um, very willing to invest in what was quite risky technology, what, what might not have actually worked or might have been disappointing and willing to invest the time to develop the techniques and invest in the hardware and the companies producing it, which was, which was an absolute um, key part of our evolution, was our early customers. Um, over time, the, the idea of buying something that might not work has become not, not, not so high a risk because we can prove our technology works. In the racing case, um, driving simulation is now a key part of the daily activities, um, almost to the point where if your driving simulator broke, you'd hardly turn up at the track. If we break the, 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 the motorsport use cases and down into two main strands, there is evaluating and characterizing the vehicle you've got, and there's developing the vehicle you haven't got. So next year's car, absolutely essential, and that, that was the early, early use case for driving simulation, was, was predicting the performance of a car you couldn't possibly have, even if you had infin infinite funds and even if you were allowed to do it. You just didn't have the capability to, to cut metal and, and, and make composite components and build a car. And the driving simulator being a, a laboratory environment that gives you perfect information about an imperfect model, all models are imperfect, um, was, was still very much um, better than waiting for the real car, running it in the real world and getting imperfect data because you never actually know exactly what the state of the system under test is in the real world. But it is the real world, so the model is, is not a model, it's, it's actually what you've got. So you've got imperfect data of a perfect system or the converse. But that became a, a it, the limitations of that um, perfect data of an imperfect model became understood and these techniques were baked into how race teams started to characterize their cars for the next race. So a race engineer will not, in a senior category, go to a race without a handbook built from driving simulation, looking at sensitivity curves, front wing angles, slot gap changes, uh, strategy changes on the software side, reaction plans for different weather conditions, for different race conditions, and so forth. So, so now, instead of just looking at 
the mechanical stuff and the electrical stuff and the powertrain stuff, you've also got to look at the software. So as well as having human in the loop, uh, we now have software in the loop where the system under test may not be the actual vehicle, it may be the code written to control one of the ECUs in the vehicle that is controlling the vehicle. And the human is not the subject of this. The human is a piece of wetware in the loop. They are there because you can't exercise that fully offline or fully online with robot you know, computer model drivers, it's just as it was the case when I started this over 25 years ago. And this is called SIL, and you can develop software very, very rapidly with a human driver exercising the system. And there are fast model-based development techniques that allow you to rapidly model the software instantly, more or less build, build code that will run in a DIL simulator, a driver-in-the-loop simulator. And that moves forward to, uh, just before you go to production, you verify it and you use hardware in the loop. So you'll take the actual ECU or ECUs, you will surround them with um, electronics that stimulate them with inputs that make them think that they behave as though they are in the actual vehicle and they will send out uh, digital or analog signals which will be captured by this hardware in the loop equipment and they will run your development code. So you run from driver in the loop to software in the loop to hardware in the loop and then to production, i.e. the racetrack, in a continuous sweep. And the SIL and the hill development give you vastly more confidence than you could possibly get with any practical amount of track testing because of the difficulty of setting up, setting up those test scenarios in the way that you want. And that's, again, my career has moved from mechanical to everything really, mechanical, electrical and software, and so are vehicles. And we're moving towards the software-defined vehicle where the software will dominate the performance. And the, 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 the rule setters will have to pay attention to this. And this is, this is very, very firmly on their radar now. Well, it's fascinating, the overview you've given there of actually being able to use this technology to really encapsulate everything we often talk about on this podcast the the fact that you need to not look at small areas of, of cars but look at the thing as a, a whole and it's fascinating what you're saying there about incorporating the software and then and then the hardware because i think there's a tendency say with obviously we talk a lot about formula one on this podcast to think of the the simulator as kind of either just a driving assist tool or a kind of end of process thing almost that like you you try it in the simulator to fettle setups and that kind of thing but this is actually something that can absolutely be driving the the design phase and your you know you're working with your your software for your your engine uh, power unit performance that kind of thing so I guess it shows how the a driver and loop simulator is also in that wider design loop and not sort of a, a branch line as perhaps a, it was initially and now is absolutely at the epicenter. Very much so. And the, the flexibility of the tool chain is such that you can use it for marginal gains where you have very small freedom to operate on small things like gear ratios or uh, trying to squeeze a, a, a bit of freedom to use a, a, a bit more energy from your battery or um, creating a, a, a strategy to give you a slightly different um, end of straight uh, behavior. Or you can use it where you have complete freedom to operate. So you, you look at the Le Mans, um, um, the sports prototype hybrids now, super, super complex vehicles. And um, um, initially, even, even now, you have so many different areas in which you can um, compromise 
the, the, the behavior of one system to promote the behavior of another. Lots of energy sources, lots of energy sinks, stuff flowing around inside, power flowing around inside the car. Uh, I mean, you know, when I started, it was, it was fuel, um, internal combustion, and a drive shaft, away you go. And now you have so many different choices there. Um, from, from the early days of that, it was recognized by the powertrain developers that the software control of that would dominate um, the, the, the effective use of all of that. And it, it, it's still the case. With driver in the loop, you get early insight into um, large uh, changes in in one area with uh, you know benefits to one compromises to another H how else could you do it there's offline analysis you sit and you sit and write a model and, and and draw some comparison curves but in the end humans got to drive it and if the human can't extract that performance if if the if the shift if the transitions from one power source to another internal combustion to to um, motor um, foundation brakes to regen if, if those aren't controllable, if those don't work smoothly, if those don't work effectively, um, that performance can't be extracted. So the great thing about Dell is the ability to move from a marginal gain scenario to complete freedom. And we, we've seen that with some race car categories where qu quite novel systems have been developed on our tools. And of course, we see it every day with the systems that are used in production. Yeah, it's fascinating that this is something that really drives innovation in new directions. I think there's a tendency sometimes for those with a casual interest to see it as a very dry sort of scientific, taking the, the fun out of design, but actually it'll send you in directions you would never necessarily consider because it'll be able to give you that empirical data or say, actually, there's something in, in this direction you'd have never considered. It's actually enabled something that, that just wasn't practically possible before, which is the vehicle dynamicists who design the vehicle can drive it. Because sadly, that isn't possible, certainly not in the senior categories, except on exceptional, exceptional events. And they can drive emulations, simulations of those vehicles every day, and they do. So they can get a very good understanding of what uh, those vehicles are doing and how to communicate that to the professional drivers. And th this is something that just isn't possible without driver in the loop. And it's an enabling tool. What it does is it unleashes your creativity because the cost of making a mistake in a DIL simulator is simply you have to recode the model, you have to reparameterize the model, something like that. Cost of making a mistake on a production vehicle is you have a season of misery um, and possibly no job. So uh, relieving you of both of those constraints unleashes the creativity. Th there's a lot of methodical work, you know, day-to-day -day production stuff is all about hygiene factors, getting it right, reproducibility, uh, configuration management. Not particularly sexy things there that, that everybody involved in this stuff has to know inside and out and practice. But on top of that, you can come in, have a really good idea, and you can check it out. In, in the old days, I worked with some fantastic designers. I worked with Enrique Scalabroni. I worked with Maurice Philippe, who drew, actually drew, which would be to say designed the Lotus 72. And if he wanted to test something, um, he, he told stories of having... Um, aerodynamic testing at Silverstone with a driver clutching a Waterfield YouTube manometer, getting to the end of the straight and closing all of the tubes off with a lever to try to capture the state of pressure across a wing. Um, you imagine that now, you imagine minds like those now who can just go, right, turn the gearbox upside down, move the transaxle behind, ahead, um, let's try this wing, 
set up. Um, it, it, it's an enabling technology. It doesn't reduce, it increases freedom and, and I think um, creativity. In terms of the science of where the, the human element is, obviously you've talked a little bit about the, the giving the right feedback to the driver, what they're feeling. Obviously, as you say, all models are imperfect and they're reacting to that model. How, how close is it and how much more is there to gain in that? Because you are effectively having to almost hack the driver's brain, aren't you? To, so they can feel the, the tires, all these things, things that are real physical feedback have to then be, simulator because that'll that'll be absolutely the key of what a driver can say tolerate in terms of the characteristics of the car how good is that now are we very much into marginal gains now or is it something that's still being learned about constantly and you're having to you know follow the almost the scientific literature to to be aware of when things are coming on the horizon because new things have been learned to apply to this things are coming along um it it's now a steady production tool chain and uh, you know there is an industry producing uh, uh, tools around simulation. Um, that there are things in the pipeline that are that are pretty interesting, but it's mostly chipping away at it. That there there are lots of areas we haven't really explored, and I think there are some great gains to be to be found in specific niche areas. Um, we can look at the the human sensory perception range is from loading, uh, which can be steady state, uh, seatbelts pulling on you, quasi steady state because nothing's steady state for very long in a race car. Um, um, the, the, the more vibration field, uh, the, the more vibration dominated area of haptics, um, the uh, audio tool chain, and we've done some significant work improving queuing for uh, the audio side. The uh, visual inputs, and we typically work with RF Pro, which produces um, beautiful hand-rendered representations of geo-specific locations. Um, interesting for road car, you typically want non-geo-specific locations because you want to have odd arrangements of, of junctions and traffic lights and things. With racing, it's it's exactly the opposite. You want that track and you want every single bump on it to be LiDAR scanned to perfection. It makes Formula E interesting when the track's only declared. <laughs> Sometimes it feels hours before you're, you're, you're racing on it. But... Tools like RF Pro are currently now limited by the hardware we can buy, not by the software. The software's there, but it just can't render the, pixel, um, the, the, the pixels quickly enough. So we have 240 hertz 4K projectors, um, but you cannot buy GPUs that can render those at the full limit of the software. So we're definitely still benefiting year by year by silicon changes, and we'll continue to do that. And there's, there's an argument that more than... 240 hertz will be of benefit maybe maybe not much above 500 hertz but you know roll on let's see um vehicle physics is pretty good actually um the the question again is how many degrees of freedom do you want in your chassis so uh you can now run 80 to 90 degrees of freedom in real time in a chassis vehicle but you can have a, a model easily with um three or four hundred um, you can actually have thirty or forty thousand if you really want it, but that's starting to get into finite element analysis. But uh, there will be there will be gains in vehicle modelling fidelity. There will be similar gains in tyre modelling fidelity due to hardware and advanced processing techniques. Tyres remain the the weak link. the The vehicle control problem is so much more difficult than other things like aircraft 
because of those four tires, because of the redundancy of the contact patch interaction with the ground and the, the, just the sheer complexity of the way forces are generated and built up. When you're trying to do something exactly, you need to just focus on those contact patches. It's all about a, a human controlling contact patch forces. And that, I think, I, I look forward to that never being solved because it would become boring if it was solved. Uh, we can see further developments inside the vehicle, um, but the one I think is interesting is when the vehicle starts looking at you. And we're seeing a little bit of that with the, the, the bio-measurement field, which is coming right up. And at the most sophisticated end of simulation in motorsport, you don't just look at the lap time. You look at how the driver is operating the simulator, but you don't rely on subjective feedback. You instrument the driver. You look at galvanic, galvanic skin response. Um, you, you, you can do um, gaze estimation and look at where they're looking. You can look at the um, stochastic movement of their eye muscles, which is below conscious control, and it's something you can't lie about. Uh, you can look at their brain activity. You can start to investigate cognitive loading and comfort. Endurance race cars, for example, uh, driver will report a certain level of comfort. And they've got to be able to keep this performance up for long, long periods of time. So a very peaky car that you have a, a, a bit of a moment in is, is not is not what you want. And is the driver's performance going to drop off with time? You can instrument the driver's brain and with the application of at least three people with PhDs in life sciences and a huge supercomputer in, uh, 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 in the cloud and a, a week of analysis at the moment, you can detect fatigue that the driver doesn't realize they've got, and you can detect stress that the driver doesn't realize they've got. So the objective measurement of driver performance will give you more information than subjective measurement, which is absolutely fascinating for me. It is fascinating. With everything you've said, the way this is driving motorsport innovation, automotive as well, and not just kind of a dry, cold, taking the the fun out of it. And, and I guess that it's still for someone in your position. It's still a, you know, a fascinating challenge. And it, it's still the, the same thing working with it, with these kinds of cars as it was 20, 30 years ago. It's just, you know, what you're looking at. You've got a vastly larger array of tools to use and understanding to get better design outcomes. That's it. Uh, the, the early days, um, you just didn't know what you didn't know. Um, now I have a much, much better understanding of all the things I don't know. That's a very, very good way to uh, explain knowledge, I think, because uh, when the knowledge grows, you always uh, realise there's far, far, far more gaps. But thank you very much, Keir. It's been absolutely fascinating to get an overview of the state of the technology and its evolution. Thank you very much, Ed. If you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. It can be on absolutely anything, F1 ancient or modern, something technical you've always wanted to know the answer to. And as I always say, no question too simple or too complicated. And sometimes the questions that seem the most simple actually elicit the most interesting answers because they really get to the heart of the matter. You can send a written question to podcast at the race.com that's podcasts at the hyphen race.com or you can also record a voice note which will clip into the show but make sure if you do that you let us know who you are in the audio recording 
Our first question comes from Olawa Damilola Gerard Labiran, who says, I really enjoy the podcast and Gary's insights into the world of F1. As a frustrated Mercedes fan, I'm very curious about why the W14 isn't gaining as much performance over the course of the season. To make matters worse, I've heard that the technical team isn't planning any more major upgrades this season. So I'm curious, given the unchanging regulation, what parts of the car require a team to focus on next season's car instead of developing the current one? Rear wings can be trimmed, new floors and bodywork can be brought throughout the season. So what makes makes improving the aerodynamic efficiency and downforce of the current car so difficult. Well, the sort of last point you make there, you know, so what makes the improving of the aerodynamic efficiency and downforce of the current car so difficult? That's just one point. And I keep on saying it's not just about downforce. It's not just about efficiency. It's about the characteristics of the car. And that's the thing they really need to improve. Um, You know, without doubt, the Red Bull has got driver... um, acceptable characteristics you know it gives the driver the feedback and it gives the driver the the confidence to push the car to the limit i think you know mercedes to be honest it's what 18 months in from the start of 2022 um they took about six months to to get over the the shock of not being a, a you know a front running team as such um and then once they did that they started working on the car to try to improve it but i think they've sort of got themselves boxed in a little bit with with the and I call it the concept. I suppose it's a cooling concept. It's how they uh, got around the the side impact structures um, for that that zero side pod, as we called it, package. Now, if that had all worked, then nobody else would have had a hope in hell of of getting there. It would have taken a, a lot of effort from all the other teams. Um, so I suppose we could say, luckily for us as viewers, but not luckily for Mercedes, it didn't work, and they need to sort of bite the bullet and get on with finding out how they can build a car now that will, and it's wrong to say copy Red Bull, but, you know, the changes in their concept that they can do within the constraints they have with the chassis, gearbox, etc., have not been that beneficial. Yes, they've gained a little bit, but, you know, if you didn't do anything from the start of the season to the end of the season, you just get to know your car a little bit better and you would get a better setup on it, and you, so you would gain a little bit. But at the end of the day, they need to bite the bullet and, and say, right, okay, where have we led ourselves down the garden path here? What are the characteristics that we need to achieve? Um, I still think they struggle to actually know that, um, but maybe they can't achieve it with the concept they have, with that, especially with that um, side impact structure being integral to the top surface of the bodywork. Um, so they've obviously decided, if they're not going to do anything more the rest of this year, they've obviously decided, bite the bullet and get on with next year's car, really put the effort into it. Um, and that's, on one hand, that's a good thing if they really do have hit a, a brick wall that they can't get through. Um, but they, what they need to be careful is that they, don't, that they don't put all their eggs in one basket, and that basket isn't the right basket, and the bottom falls out of it because they start next season again poorly. So I would still be very keen to do some cut-and-shut experiments, I suppose you might call it, try and keep the cost down, but but see if you can get on top of some of it um, this year. There are, I think there are ways of doing some stuff, but it would be, you know, as I say, the cut-and-shut solution um, to save money on the on the budget cap and also to just, it's important for the team to, to you know, have the confidence that they're going the right direction. And you don't get that if you just put your hands in there and say, right, okay, what we got is what we got. Um, we can't make it any better, but we will next year, and that, that's that's tough. You know, that's that's a that's a tough thing to accept. 
Yeah, they've said that next year there will be some major architectural changes, as you alluded to, to the monocoque uh, rear suspension gearbox, obviously integral to the rear suspension rear suspension pickup points. So yeah, we will see some big steps next year. But yeah, as you say, they need to make more gains this year and just to show they've got the understanding. The next question comes from Chad Hybert, who says, please explain the pneumatic valve system. What do the actuators look like? What is the source of the air? How big is it? Do they still use it? And if so, why? Isn't the RPM range of today's engines practical for valve springs? Why are the hydraulic systems such a point of failure? Why has nothing been developed to replace them? By the way, I'd love to see the gear shift lever back in the sport. Well, I'll take the last point first. Uh, so would I. And uh, actually, it's quite funny at Jordan. Um, they've, they've moved on to a new factory now as, as Austin Martin. But at Jordan, when we moved into the, um, to the what was Jordan's new factory in 1993 or 94, whenever we were sort of pursuing the the electronic gear change i had a picture of a of a gear gear lever and the gear shaft and from the jordan 191 up on the wall just to make sure nobody forgot that you know a gear lever was in existence at a point in time and it's all not all electronic um but yeah i I would so i'm going backwards through your questions here uh the second part i'll take the hydraulic systems such a point of failure um, hydraulics obviously is a, a liquid base. Um, it's uh, pressurized by a hydraulic pump, and it runs at sort of two thousand plus um, psi. Um, so it's it's one of those sort of things. It's working very hard. It does a lot of work, and that it's the gear change. It operates the clutch. It operates the throttle system. It operates the, the DRS rear wing. It operates the power steering. Um, so. You know, it's 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 working a lot of the parts of the car. So a small failure, a small leak, could e- very easily um, cause you a massive problem. Um, it's one of those things. There's no, there's no big volume in it, no big capacity because they're trying to save the weight. Each hydraulic system probably consists of maximum of half a liter of oil. So if you get a little weep because of all those pressures, I said two thousand psi. That's about three thousand psi actually. Um, if you get a little weep. Uh, it doesn't take long to lose that oil. Um, and then on top of that, it's all electronically controlled. So if something goes wrong in the control system as well, you hear a lot of, you know, had a hydraulic failure, a throttle failure, a differential failure, whatever. So it, it, it's responsible for a lot of working on the car. Um, it has a massive task to do on the car. And I'm surprised we don't have more failures, to be honest. Going on to the, the first part of the question, the pneumatic valve system. Yes, uh, the RPM that the, that the cars run now, um, uh, spring valve control would not be out of the question, but it's it's heavier. Um, you can't stop technology. Once people learn about the uh, the air valve system, um, you know it's you're not going to go backwards and really put a spring in there. Spring spring control. It's not just about opening and shutting the valve. It's it, with the spring you can get this um, this flutter where the valve doesn't actually shut. Um, it sits there bouncing. Um, very small amount of bouncing, but it does sit there bouncing. Uh, and obviously the RPM affects that dramatically. But with the air valve system, I mean, it is just a little cylinder um, with a seal, a male-female cylinder as such wrapped around the valve, um, a bit like a small hydraulic ram, I suppose. And in that outer part of that cylinder, there's a, a journal in the in the head of the engine that will feed air pressure to it. Um, and basically, there's a you know they're all connected together. So when one valve gets compressed as such, 
um, it puts pressure on the other one, the other cylinder to shut it or to help shut it. But it, it does run at a certain pressure itself, and it, it has got a little compressor on the car um, and, a, and a, a cylinder. Some teams, some engine manufacturers might not have the compressor now, might just rely on the fact the system doesn't have any in, inherent leak. Uh, so it'll be a very small cylinder, and that's why you see sometimes, um, I think Norris at the beginning of this year had one where he had to come in and get the air valve system topped up. And that's just because the reservoir was, it was leaking and the reservoir needed topping up. The leak wasn't huge, but the, the thing the engine will protect itself is that as the air valve system pressure would drop, then the engine RPM would drop. So you didn't end up with a catastrophic failure as such. Um, in Peugeot days with, with Jordan, we had a lot of air valve system problems to begin with. And we found that it wasn't, it wasn't just the air leaking, it was actually oil and the heads was getting into the air valve system and the cylinders were hydraulic because this, the thing just got full of oil. So it was a, a sort of a double problem, I suppose you might call it. Um, but basically it's a, it's a very neat and tidy little system. It all works very simply. It's very important that the sealing systems and all that are, you know, consistent. They don't start leaking at any point in time. Um, but it's just part of part of engineering. That's all it is. Uh, I think it is still better than air than uh, conventional springs, um, just from the fact that it's lighter. Uh, the, the the camshaft doesn't have so much work to do to open it as it does with a spring, um, because this, the pressure builds up in the air system as you compress it, um, whereas a spring is fairly linear. So. Yeah, it's, it's just technology. It's moved on. The next question comes from Tim Donovan, who says, how does a team overspend on developments? A modern F1 team employs a team of designers, engineers, and produces all their own cars, bar the non-performance items. They employ those people all year round, own the factory and the machinery involved. How is it then that they overspend when it comes to developments? It cannot be that all the cost comes from buying a few more metres of carbon fibre that is then moulded and baked into a new front wing. Is it overtime? Are they having to put more money in the metre to keep the autoclaves running? When the Red Bull overspend was said to be effectively 400000 this was said to be a considerable amount of a team's development budget but if you already employ the people own the machinery and have the materials how can it cost more good question there guy i'm sure you never overspent on your technical budget in your times and, and got uh, uh, got a telling off from the accounts people uh well we never had a development budget i suppose so i was always getting told off uh, yeah the, your, your question your question's quite right you know as you say the the, the machines the the, the group of people, all that stuff that's responsible for it, are there. So if they're not doing anything, they're still getting paid and your car isn't going forward. So it's one of those things you've got to sort of make sure that you don't, you don't sort of fall into the temptation of, um, of doing more. If you've got, you know, if you've got a team that's, that's going racing, they'll have at least, you know, four underfloor assemblies. Um, they'll have you know at least four front wing assemblies, maybe even more. You know, so spares wise, you've got to have all this stuff there. Um, so if something gets damaged, you know, you've you've got to replace it. Um, and then somebody comes, click. Oh look, I found two percent more downforce. You know, we need this underfloor, and that's when it really becomes a problem because you you know you have to make that decision. Uh, can we spend the money on it? And you know, most teams want to be competitive, so that's where they'll sort of jump in and say yeah let's go for it we'll we'll save the money somewhere else you know that's the big thing is we'll save the money somewhere else that's saving somewhere else you need to be really disciplined to find it so it's a it's a temptation of going faster um and the the promise of we'll, we'll save the money somewhere else or we'll only have two of those underfloors you know 
but then somebody crashes one and you've got you know you've got to put an old spec on it so you've got to go to the back of the grid you, you can't do that sort of stuff so it's the the temptation to go better it's the um, promises of saving the money somewhere else and the fact that you want to be um, able to run a race weekend without any big dramas uh, it, you know it sucks you in I think I suppose is the best way to do it it's like anything you know if you're really disciplined you only spend the money you got in your pocket but at some point in time you see someone that you sort of would like or need there's a difference you know if you really would like it or if you really need it there's two different things um but sometimes you have to save up that money it's in your pocket a little while before you buy it and and formula one teams aren't very good at that because there's just so much money involved a flick you know i don't know a couple of days of a season you know and and suddenly you could spend a hundred thousand um without any problem and that just mounts up over the season so it's very easy to spend too much money in Formula One by just time going past on you. Exactly. And obviously the cost cap creates those artificial limits on teams that perhaps haven't been so disciplined in working within those limits. Obviously budgets have always been there, particularly for the, uh, the smaller teams. So it's just, it's the same old challenge. Ultimately, our final question comes from Tom Reese, who is a Welshman living in Australia. With the cars acting as a vacuum cleaner, as Gary mentioned on the podcast, would it be possible to bolt a plate to the base of the cars as a temporary measure to remove the ground effect vortices completely in the wet? The cars are travelling at a much reduced speed, meaning the benefit associated is reduced. Or would this cause too much of a loss in downforce to the cars, resulting in instabilities? Would the above make any tangible difference to the spray? So effectively, for the wet weather package, this is the idea of a bolt-on flat floor. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, it will make a difference, but it's a massive difference. You know, that's that's something that uh, would change the complete characteristics of the car. Um, obviously, it's you know, it could be a big insert that just goes into the uh, to the ground effect underfloor. Um, but again, as I say, that's what the car's developed around. That's what it's got its whole aerodynamic um, profile from. And if you affect that so dramatically, it will be massive consequences. And obviously, if you could have it in in, uh, in wet conditions, you want more downforce, not less downforce. So at the end of the day, you're going to sort of destroy everything you've got just because of the spray. I, I'm i sure there's a, a better way of trying to control that spray to a certain level. Um, again, you know, I, as I said I went earlier on in this program, I went up to the, to the uh, MotoGP at Silverstone the weekend. And, you know, those bikes, are, they're not ground effect bikes. They've got the contact, tire contact patches the size of a postage stamp um, relative to Formula 1 cars. So, But they still make spray. You know, they still do generate a, a huge amount of spray just from the fact that they are a, a vehicle travelling through damp conditions. You know, there's spray coming off the bodywork uh, around the driver, off the tyres picking up from the ground. So, you know, it's one of those sort of things. Sometimes you've got to accept what you've got you can try and trim it a little bit here and there and i'm sure there's something can be done to to reduce the spray by a, a, a bit of a percentage but i don't think you want to get too excited about sort of having a major conversion to the car that would affect the whole aerodynamic profile and development direction of the cars that are there for the dry you, you want to sort of enhance that a little bit i suppose just uh, just try and trim it as much as you can don't think you'll ever succeed in getting rid of it completely, other than the fact that you, you know, drill ten mil holes in the track and have a complete vacuum system to suck the water under the surface and spit it out into the crowd. Um, but you know, it's one of those sort of situations. How far do you go? What do you do? It's, it's impossible to really um, get rid of the inevitable. 
Yeah, certainly. I think as far as I understand it from the FIA's project, they want something a little bit more subtle and something so extreme. The question is whether they can actually achieve that 50% visibility improvement that they want within just covering the wheels or that kind of thing. But we've spoken about that before, and there's a great article by Gary on the race website where he suggests the next step for uh, for, for version two of these spray guards because the first one didn't work very well. So that's very much an ongoing topic. Well, thanks very much, Gary, for those excellent answers. If you've got a question for Gary, remember it's podcasts at the race.com. That's podcasts at the hyphen race.com. We always like to get through as many of those questions as we can. So we're very grateful for those of you who send them in. And as I say, no stupid questions. So anything you'd like to know, drop us a line. Thanks very much, Gary. As always, we'll be back in a few weeks with another episode as the F1 season gets into the second half of the year. I'm sure there'll be plenty of tech talk for us to tackle there. Thanks very much to everyone for listening and stay with us for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.